and welcome again to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to finish his dissertation, get a job, and along the way, figure out just what on earth being a historian is actually about. So this season, we are going to be changing things up a little bit. We're going to be transitioning into a little bit of an interview podcast where I will, uh, you know, meet up with other historians who are doing really interesting work and we'll talk to them about not only the stuff that they're doing, but how they came to be historians and the struggles along with that. We have some great podcasts already in the can. Um, and we have some more that are planned in the future. But today, we're going to have a little bit of a special episode about this weird thing called digital humanities. Now, a little bit of background. Why are we doing a podcast on digital humanities just plunked down right in the middle of January when I should be doing other things like, I don't know, writing a, writing my dissertation or, or responding to my advisor's emails or doing any of that? Well... There's two reasons. One's a mercenary reason, and another is a you know a, an actual academic reason. So the mercenary reason is that I got asked to do a talk on digital humanities, and I wrote that talk, and I need to practice that talk and see how much time the talk takes, and kind of just get my brain into the in, into the space where I can give this little mini lecture about digital humanities. But then there's uh, you know, an actual richer reason, which is that I've always done in my research something that you might consider DH, digital humanities. I've always, you know, worked with computers. I, I, some of my earliest memories, and this is going to be really nerdy, but some of my earliest memories are literally sitting on my father's knee in front of his old PC, you know, one of the ones that didn't have like a 256 color monitor most people who are listening to this cannot remember that but but there was a time when the monitors you know were when 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 they were full color it was exciting and i remember sitting on my dad's knee and uh renting floppy disk games and playing them with him um i remember playing zork i think one of those games where you're like a little ascii character and Throughout my life, I've I've grown up with computers. I've I've you know played games and installed things and solved various problems of my life with computers. And I might be one of the first people who really grew up with a computer in their day to day life. And so it's kind of natural that when I turned my sights to history, that I would use the same kinds of tools, databases, searches, uh, you know, uh, 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 mapping, all, all these things that, that came second nature to me because I grew up with them, then impacted my work. After I did my master's, I, I figured out that this was part of a trend, that it wasn't just people, you know, out there doing the things that they'd grown up doing, but that a lot of scholars were thinking a lot more methodically about how computers could help the humanities more broadly. And for a while, this was, you know, as far as academic things go, it, it, it was sexy. There was a lot of money and excitement and attention played to the digital humanities. People would talk about it in the hallways. What on earth is it? You know, what's it going to do to us? But there was a sense of hope in the air. I still think that there's a sense of hope in the air for digital humanities, but 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 the ardor has cooled a little bit. And so that's the background. I, I think that it's it's useful to think through just what on earth this massive amount of ubiquitous computing power is going to do to how we study history. And that's what we're going to be talking about um, in this little presentation. So first, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about just what is digital humanities. Um, there's a joke that I've heard in every single uh, digital humanities conference that I've ever been to in my entire life. And that joke is that every single presentation about digital humanities starts with the question, just what on earth is digital humanities? Um, people ask about it when they don't know what digital humanities are, and people who are really invested in the digital humanities ask it of themselves. So 
I mean, there's two questions here. Why does it matter, and why is there such a confusion? I'll tackle the first one first. So, so why does it matter? Why do we, you know, why am I opening up this uh, lecture to you all about digital humanities with kind of a big question mark over the very idea of digital humanities itself? Ideally, right, I should be giving you some really flashy examples of why digital humanities is, is, is fantastic and good and why you should invest in it. But instead, I am opening up with this, with this kind of uncertainty. What on earth is this thing? Well, it matters because when you're doing scholarly work, you're not only working in isolation on your little problem by yourself, but you're trying to connect up with groups of people who've worked through the same kinds of difficult intellectual problems that you have. And so naming what you're doing is intensely important. And Throughout the history of our discipline, these names, these trends have been really powerful organizing devices for people to understand the problems that they're facing as a group of scholars. It's very useful in, you know, finding conferences and finding journals and finding like-minded people and in finding jobs. It's a way of branding yourself. And that's not, you know, it's not nothing. It's not like we're all just floating brains with tenure who can go off and read Montaigne for six years and then, you know, walk down the steps of the ivory tower back into the, you know, the, the, the grubby townsfolk and step up on a lectern and then spew out, you know, genius humanistic uh, uh, ideas without having to go and do the difficult work of talking to other people who are interested in the same things as we are. But then there's the practical problem of why is DH or digital humanities, as opposed to other kinds of disciplines or other kinds of trends or other kinds of fads, why is it so difficult to pin down? You know, people don't ask at every single Asian studies convention, what is Asian studies? I mean, I'm sure that people ask that question. I'm sure that that there's been some plenary discussion where an annoying emeritus professor has said, well, just what on earth is, is Asian studies? But it seems not to trouble other genres of scholarship as much as it troubles digital humanities. And I think at root of the problem is that there's two different camps on just what on earth digital humanities actually is. So first, I'm going to call them the soft version and the hard version. So the soft version of digital humanities says digital humanities is just a bunch of methods. You know, when we can use them, we can just add them on to our traditional scholarship. The hard version is stronger. It says that digital humanities is a new discipline, radically different from other approaches, and perhaps not even humanities at all. So I'm going to flesh out these two views briefly. So the soft version. The soft version goes like this. Computers have changed almost every single aspect of life in the modern world. This is so obvious, and you've read this so many times that I don't need to flesh it out any more than saying like Facebook, Google, Twitter, blah, 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 blah. And why not the humanities also? Humanists can use the same kinds of tools that everybody else is using to, you know, push their scholarship in new ways, to make their lives easier. And so the new generation of humanists will use computers because they grew up with them. The new generation of humanists, like me, are going to use computers because, like me, they grew up with computers. It is our bread and butter. It is the way that we look for things and analyze things. And to the extent that digital humanities is changing the face of historical scholarship or humanistic scholarship, it's just kind of a natural progression of these tools into our daily life. The soft version, you know, if you could define it, would say that digital humanities is a value-neutral set of methods that will extend but will not fundamentally change traditional humanistic scholarship. You can also see it as uh, what's often called the, the big tent approach to digital humanities. The digital humanities is just 
a massive amount of different methods that don't necessarily talk to one another and don't necessarily have anything to do with one another except for the fact that they take place on the computer, they're used in the academy, and they're used to answer questions that are posed by people in particular kinds of disciplines like history or even better, modern languages, right? So that's the soft version. The hard version is the digital humanities is a completely different kind of intellectual endeavor. Some people say that it's not even the humanities. Um, so some people think that this is a good thing, that this is a positive part of digital humanities. Um, a couple years ago in history, uh, there was a big book called The History Manifesto, written by David Armitage and Joe Gouldy, um, who su suggested that, that, that digital humanities could push history out of its current kind of moribund state, uh, where we think only about short-term problems and we dig into our, you know, little ivory tower uh, 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 projects and we don't speak to the wider world. They argued that because digital humanities can deal with stuff on a really, really long span of time and deal with a lot of data, that it could get us to grasp again to the big questions that take place over the really, really big time periods. So, you know, that's that's one version of the hard uh, uh, version of DH. Another suggests, uh, you know, a little bit more salutary, that digital humanities can offer a corrective to the ways of thinking that are becoming ingrained in data science classes and computer science classes and sociology classes, that this is not just digital humanities, but humanities for a digital age. That, you know, just as traditional English majors were taught how to read texts critically, that now new English majors will need to learn how to read algorithms critically, that, 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 that in this changing nature of what human social life is, the humanities has to shift its focus away from canonical texts, away from, you know, daydreaming about Montaigne, um, and instead turning towards the new kind of weird digital world that we live in. So those are kind of the positive versions of the hard version of, 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 of DH. But there is a much more pointed critique that if you are at all involved in history or the humanities in general, you've probably read. So this version sees digital humanities as replacing politically radical scholarship with useful neoliberal technical skills that undermine the uh, uh, transformative role of the humanities in the modern university. In this characterization, DH's confusion, its, 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 its fuzziness, is an intentional obfuscation of its methodological commitments to an apolitical empiricism. That's a lot of words, so I'm going to unpack them. So a lot of the criticism of DH is that it kind of doesn't have a theory about itself. It's, it's just a big tent, a collection of methods that people learn and try out. And this hard version sees that in, in that great tradition of the hermeneutics of suspicion. It sees that as a trick. It says what digital humanities is really doing is it's trying to take the important political work that's going on in like cultural studies departments and snatching the rug out under them by replacing it with this kind of technical la-di-da where people learn how to code, right? The caricature is that DH is just going to turn the whole world into statisticians or sociologists, and critical theory is, 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 is going to die a death of a thousand cuts. So there's, you know, before you think that, that, that this uh, characterization of this skeptical hard version is hyperbole, I'm going to read you a quote from, um, I think, one of the more... Uh, uh, clear and telling and strident uh, 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 examples of this critique, an article called Neoliberal Tools and Archives, A Political History of Digital Humanities uh, from the LA Review of Books uh, by Ellington, Bruliette, and Golumbia. Uh, and I just want to point out that it has a lot of nice buzzwords in the title. Neoliberal, archives, political history, digital humanities. Uh, it's, 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 it's a trendy article. So, here is that quote. What digital humanities is not about, despite its explicit claims, 
is the use of digital or quantitative methodologies to answer research questions in the humanities. Side note, see, see, their whole point is it's not the humanities anymore. It is instead about the promotion of project-based learning and lab-based research over reading and writing, the rebranding of insecure campus employment as an empowering all-tech career choice, and the redefinition of technical expertise as a form, indeed the superior form, of humanistic knowledge. This is why digital humanities is pushed far more strongly by university administrators than it is by scholars and students who increasingly find themselves pressured to redirect their work towards digital humanities. So in this view, digital humanities is, is kind of a stealth way of taking this, this woke kind of scholarship and turning it towards something that Amazon would like. So why is there this divide? Why do we have both the soft and the hard versions of what DH is? And more importantly, why do we have the pessimistic and the optimistic uh, views of what DH can do for scholarship and for the university? Well, so why? Why, why do we have that? Is it personalities? I mean, in part, I think this is, this is not something to be scoffed at. Uh, engaging with digital humanities forces you as a scholar to deal with new kinds of of thinking. Um, it requires you to touch computer code and to quantify stuff and to think about how you can turn your messy data into what they call operationalized things. You know, how to, how to turn the chatter of your sources into a variable that you can track over time with numbers. And some people just don't like numbers. I mean, more pointedly, um, I think that humanists as a group, at least the people that I've met in my history department are relatively innumerate, especially for smart people. They might be the least numerate group of smart people that you can meet in, in, in the professions. But this innumeracy makes these people wary of methods that require numeracy. And furthermore, I think that this is not an accident. This innumeracy is not an accident. It's a way that humanists have throughout their professional careers distinguish themselves from other smart people. They say, hey, we're smart people who are smart about things that aren't numbers. We're not scientists. We study words, right? I remember the moment that this realization clar clarified for me when I was talking with a friend about her research and you know, I suggested, you know, this would be ripe for social network analysis. You have like tons of data that would be beautiful for it. And she demurred and said, oh, Brendan, I'm, I, I can't do that. I can't learn how to code. And I nodded and agreed with her and, and walked away. And then I, I realized this person is so blindingly smart that she read Hegel in German. Like, I can't read Hegel in English, and she she read Hegel in German, and she's saying that she can't learn how to use a social network analysis package, which, you know, half of the dumbos on the Facebook bus can do in their sleep. I mean, really, humanists can do this stuff. They just have defined themselves in a way that makes them kind of decide not to. And I mean, there's other reasons why. It's, it's hard to get these kinds of skills. It's hard to learn programming. It's hard to learn statistics. It's hard to learn how to read numbers, especially if you're already well on your career uh, where you're good at doing other things. And then there's just kind of this, this, this sense right now that computers are eating everything in our lives, that, that, that this computational world, this world of Facebook and Twitter and, 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 and screens are, 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 are suffocating normal, real-life, red-meat human matters. And so, you know, maybe there's just kind of a bias there. And also there's, there's, there's a historical reason for this divide. In the American Academy, broadly, and this is going to be a hideous caricature, and if, if you are a scholar who knows about these sorts of things, or, or even worse, one of my advisors, just, just take out your headphones and walk around for a minute or two while I give an incredibly canned history of American academia over the past three decades. So broadly, broadly, uh, in the 1980s, uh, uh, a lot of humanities went in a new direction, uh, which you will hear 
called a bunch of different things. They mean different things. These are different labels for different trends, but we can kind of just all say for the sake of this canned history that they're they're all part of a piece. We can think of them as the cultural turn or the linguistic turn or postmodernism. You know them by the books on their bookshelves, Foucault and Derrida and post-structuralism and lots of words and an attention towards uh, discourse and language and culture and behavior and practice against empiricism and graphs and numbers and hypotheses. And this happened in the 80s, and it won. It won, you know, pretty handily. A lot of departments are really, really dominated by this particular style of humanistic inquiry. And the worry is that that digital humanities is a return of the bad old days of naive empiricism that the cultural turn in the 80s was meant to stop. That it is a, you know, a revanchist, you know, Empire Strikes Back moment just repackaged in a computer program. So what's right? What 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 is my take on this question of what is digital humanities? Do I believe the hard view or the soft view? Well, I actually think that it's both. I think that digital humanities is a method-led approach that leads to new theoretical commitments. The only problem is, is that we're really early in seeing what this method-led approach is going to lead to, and so we don't know what kind of theoretical commitments there are on the horizon. Um, in the talk that I'm going to give, I, I have like this little, you know, cute visualization that that that, that shows this. Uh, we have new tools and new scholars, and these new tools and new scholars will come up with new perspectives on old problems, and even more importantly, they'll come up with new problems because of the new tools that they're using. They're going to be seeing their disciplines in different ways. And when they work on this, they're going to come up with new theories and new debates. Now, why is this so hard to square? Well, the last few turns, the last few trends in scholarship were led by theories. They were led by theories that made new use of old data, new methods that flowed from new theoretical commitments. Cultural history paid attention, for example, to the languages of politics, to the changing nature of concepts over time, to the slippery way that discourse uh, affects practice, right? So you have all this old data, all these old things that people were just reading the same way for, for 20 years, and then this new theoretical commitment lets you look at it in a new way. Women's history, perhaps more clearly, shows this in another light. Women's history paid attention to the women in the archives. It forced scholars to look askance at the records that they were re reading and try to find the women in there. A theoretical commitment forces people to develop a new method. But in this, in this new, you know, digital humanities era, the method comes first. The tools come first. The attempts to figure out what on earth we can do with this new, you know, external mental brain that we are carrying in our backpacks every day is going to lead to us to have a new kind of picture of what it is that we study. It's empiricist. It is empiricist. But that, I think, makes the older practitioners weary. They ask, where's the theory? But they think it's a con game, I think. They think it's a way of, 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 of smuggling in old kinds of commitments without doing the work. But I think that, you know, in the 10 or 20 years that, 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 that will spin on, that new perspectives, these new kinds of, of, of readings of old material will lead to new theories and new debates and, and new conceptions of the academy, new genres of thinking. And it's likely that they won't even be called DH at all. So that's my pitch for what DH is. It's a bag of methods right now um, that will let you see new things and will probably in the future come up with some new uh, philosophies or new theories or new trends in the academy. So now I'm going to shift gears and, and, and talk to you, my listeners, as if you were uh, uh, historians or humanists interested in digital humanities. And I'm going to make the pitch for why, despite all of that hand-wringing I just went through, 
you should try your hand at digital humanities. And there's three big news. I'm going to tell you three new things that you can do with digital humanities. You can make new analyses, you can use new sources, and you can present your work in new ways. So, let's think about these new kinds of analyses that digital humanities opens up. And I think that the very biggest is DH can allow us to think about things rigorously at new scales. So a lot of digital humanities approaches, uh, even for their variety, they're all doing the same things. They let us boil down a bunch of human behavior and look at it kind of distantly over a long period of time. You know, one of the big foundational DH texts for, for, for literary DH is Franco Moretti's Distant Reading. And that's been kind of a metaphor for what DH lets people do. It lets you use a computer to interact with an archive or some sort of, you know, database and present a kind of, you know, further remove of the behavior than what you normally get. So one way that the DH can help us with scale is that it can help us take in tons more documents. A literary DH uh, has been using a lot of full text corpuses. Um, Google Books tried to digitize tons and tons and tons of books from some key academic libraries, and these have been further digitized by the Hathi Trust. And with the right kind of setup, you can do some very sophisticated manipulation of these text corpora. You can do questions like, uh, you know, what percentage of words used are man or woman or, you know, it, it can get quite complicated, but the presentation it will be immediately legible to you. It will be a big time series graph with uh, the uh, y-axis showing the percentage of the to of, 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 of the corpora that has a particular word being used and the x-axis being time. It will be really just very easy to read. You can take in at a glance something that would take hundreds and hundreds of years to read. So DH also allows us to expand our time horizons. You know, when you're just trying to figure out how something changes and you're just reading stuff, it can get hard. It can get hard to keep things straight. You know, in my uh, notebook about all of my primary sources for my dissertation, I don't have a very good uh, uh, filing system. You know, I, I have like, uh, notes here and there about each individual particular uh, uh, source, but the sources span dozens of years, a hundred years in some cases, and I just have like scribbled down notes, and, 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 and in my head I have this kind of vague sense of how things change, and I'm basing a lot of my writing of my dissertation on this vague sense, and again, if my advisors are listening, or anybody who's going to hire me, or, or, or anybody of any academic weight, that vague sense is of course highly earned from hundreds of hours in the archives, but it's still a vague sense. If somebody asked me to defend it, I could pull up individual quotes uh, to defend my claims, and that's basically what my dissertation does. But it's not really possible to see these changes subtly over a long period of time, and digital humanities can help us do that. In my own work, what makes my work DH is that I try to make a, a very rigorous census of the kinds of behaviors that are going on in my chosen research site, clubs and societies. And this ends up turning into some big time series graphs that you can see in an instant. Um, the very subtle changes between different kinds of specializations and different regions and different activities over time that if you were doing it in any other way just wouldn't be legible at all. So digital humanities can help us grasp a new kind of scale. DH can also help us use new kinds of data. Traditional humanities is a discipline especially about reading and writing. I mean, if you 
go back to the original humanists, Erasmus and Montaigne and all those other cool library dwellers from the 15th century or whatever, they would consider themselves humanists because they read a lot, and they read a lot of a particular kind of canonical text. And of course now we don't read canonical texts anymore, but we consider ourselves humanists because we consider ourselves wordy. We're bookworms. We are lovers of texts. We we write. We, 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 we dream in stories. You know, the reason why history, which I think is a social science, is often lumped in with the humanities is because historians like to read. And we like to give the end result of our work in the same way. We write papers. We write books. We gather together edited volumes. We take archives and we make printed bound versions of them. You know, there's kind of a way that historians and humanists more general don't think that something is finished unless it is printed. And because of that, we have kind of limits on what it is that we analyze, right? Like, we analyze the things that are easier to write and read about, which is writing and reading. Um, book history is super important because we're all kind of nerds who like books, right? But also it means that certain kinds of sources end up not being used as much. If you were a historian who relied primarily on visual evidence, it's a lot harder for you to quote that evidence in the text of your dissertation or book, because if you get a book, it might not have, you know, the budget to print more than two, three, a dozen, half a dozen uh, plates, right? But digital humanities lets you analyze images and use maps in a much broader way. If only for the simple fact that most of us do most of our reading no longer on paper. And so we can present things in new ways. We can present things with images and texts and, and interactive graphs and maps and movies and sound and a whole lot more. But also, the same kinds of computational tools that allow us to do distant reading approaches to text can also allow us to do more rigorous things with images and sounds and movies. Uh, at the conference I was just at in January, I spoke with a researcher, a statistician who's doing a big project on sitcoms. They're analyzing, you know, 30 years of sitcom scripts to figure out like genres of comedy. And they're doing it not only by reading the sitcom scripts, but also by using uh, uh, machine learning and digital tools to get this kind of more distant sense of what is happening. So I think that DH can do this large-scale, subtle view of quiet changes over time that traditional scholarship has kind of missed out on. I'm going to quote a, a paper by uh, Goldstone and Underwood about how digital approaches can help us uh, uh, figure out how small changes can happen over time. Um, quote, we believe numbers are useful, not because they're precise or objective or free from interpretation, but because they can help us grapple with the subtle interpretive problems endemic to cultural history, where change is often determined by multiple causes. So this is saying, like, look, all these people who think that DH is just a way of smuggling brute empiricism through the back door, you're wrong. We can use numbers, we can use counting to still have complicated discussions about what culture actually is. So the second big thing that digital humanities lets us do is it lets us bring new sources online. Um, I've already kind of mentioned a lot of these. We can use aggregate data, like databases. A, a big part of my work in, in both my personal project and in the project that I'm getting paid for uh, as a technical lead is that I make big databases that try to approximate a, a, a sense of what is happening to a problem over time. Right? So I have this big database and I can play with it in the way that I might play with index cards of, 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 of more traditional primary sources. 
Um, but you can get aggregate data about a lot of stuff, about trade routes, about temperature, about the price of bread, and all of these are going to come online in new ways as DH makes greater inroads to the academy. New sources can include maps and images and sounds and, and 3D representations. And this is going to, you know, I don't want to belabor all these new sources because you can kind of see how they're fitting in. And importantly, digital humanities allows us to package our work in new ways, in the same way that allows us to mess with new sources in new ways. It allows us to tell people what we're doing um, in new manners as well. I mean, just at the most simple, like, a lot of how I get a sense of what's happening in my field comes, and this is horrible, but it comes from Twitter. You know, Twitter has become a kind of academic public sphere, not necessarily recognized by tenure committees or by one's advisor or, or by anybody, but it's become a place where people do important intellectual work. Um, you know, Kevin Cruz is a great example of a person who's emerged as a public historian by kind of, you know, troll tweeting right wingers. And this is I don't think it's 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 frivolous at all. Um, I think it's a really necessary way that we can engage with the public at large in ways that we haven't ever been able to do before. Um, there are online fora like Reddit's Ask Historians, where uh, people who are involved with history can uh, uh, have a combination of like rigorous historical scholarship where everything has to be sourced with an openness to hear questions from all comers, which is something that like we do not have in the traditional academy. We do not have open office hours at Cal where people can walk into Dwinnell Hall Berkeley and, and knock on people's doors and just ask them any question about whatever dumb thing has come into their minds. It would infuriate the professors. But it's the, the internet allows us the affordance to be a lot more open. There are, of course, blogs. Uh, one of the things that's made my life so much easier are in, uh, uh, fully searchable, large online archives. You know, 15 years ago, I probably wouldn't be able to do my work unless I flew over to England a lot for the archives. But now, if I didn't need to go to the archives just to, you know, get the experience of going to the archives just to get that like professional you know uh, uh mark of distinction that i've i've gotten my library card and i've i've touched the 300 year old manuscripts and smelled the 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 the, the, the air of, of 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 history if i didn't need to do that just so that other historians would think that i'm a real historian i could do all of my research or a lot of my research by looking at online archives of newspapers and books from the comfort of my own home. There is so much out there that has been digitized, especially after print starts to get a bit richer in the early 18th century. And, and so much of it is accessible if you are lucky enough to have a, his, you know, an institutional uh, library uh, username and password. Um, and there's new ways as well of presenting our scholarship. There's a number of dissertations and articles that have been released in new ways that that seek to use some of the affordances of uh, computers, of, of, of online stuff, that seek to be a lot more flexible than older ways of publishing. Um, uh, Gouldy and Armitage's History Manifesto, which I mentioned before, got into a bit of trouble because they released themselves as a digital edition and the authors responded to criticisms by editing their manuscript. And, and people thought this was kind of an underhanded way of, 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 of dealing with things. They, they, they balked at it. Um, but digital editions can do a lot more than just allow you to edit on the fly or correct that annoying errata. They also allow you to incorporate new kinds of sources, to incorporate images and graphs and to connect things in new ways and to just be a more fun experience uh, to read. Um, and finally, of course, you have new ways of, of interacting with the public. This podcast, for me, is a way of doing digital humanities work. It's a way of translating the talks that I would be having uh, 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 in my home institution to a much wider audience. And it's as digital as, as anything else that I do.
But underneath this is a bigger promise of digital humanities, something, something that, that, that both the detractors of digital humanities and the supporters of it are kind of eking out. Digital humanities offers the humanities a new relevance. In some ways, there's kind of a dour pessimism going on, especially amongst uh, what they call early career scholars like me, people who are uh, still finishing up their PhDs and who might be looking for jobs in a couple years, or people who are already out on the job market. It doesn't seem like there are a lot of jobs out there for us anymore. It's very unlikely that I will get to be a tenure-track professor. And that's scary, and it's sad. It's sad and scary because most of the things that I do each day are preparing myself to become a tenure-track professor and get my my tweed suit with the suede patches, or, or is it the suede suit with the tweed patches? No, it's, yeah, I, I was right the first, but, but, but everything I'm doing is pushing myself to be this certain kind of person. And it's very unlikely that I'm going to be that kind of person. There's also fewer enrollments than ever before. Uh, a article was released a couple months ago showing that between 2011 and 2017, the number of history majors awarded declined by a third. People are not majoring in history anymore. They're majoring in computer science and uh, uh, data science and engineering and these things that people think will get them a job. They are not majoring in history. Digital humanities is a promise that we can still have something to say, that we will be open to the world. As, 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 as Mary Berry, uh, uh, not the Baker Mary Berry, the Japanese Mary Berry said in a talk, they are saying yes to now. Digital humanities is saying yes to now, opening ourselves up to what the world is now. Not only dealing with modern methods, but dealing with modern problems. Offering a way to train uh, new generations of students in new methods. This is the secret promise of DH. That it will help us be relevant again. So, if you are interested in digital humanities, how on earth do you do it? Well, there's kind of two ways that DH can help you, and one of them might be invisible because we don't often see it. DH can help you in your exploration of a particular topic or problem or source base, and it can help you in your research. So DH can help you with exploring a topic. I mean, if you listen to a historian speak about the things that they study, you will get the impression that they just woke up one day and every single fiber of their being was attuned with the rhythm of their dissertation topic. I woke up one morning three years ago and my heart spoke clubs and societies in 18th century Britain, and it was never any more difficult than that. But a great deal of the actual problems of being a scholar are finding interesting questions. That's again why genre of historical scholarship is so important, because it helps us frame new questions. And another problem is finding new sources. And digital humanities can help us do both of these things. Um, if you're interested in DH, I encourage you to learn a bunch of new kinds of methods, to learn a bunch of new tools, and try to kind of look at what sources are out there in your area of study and just try to mess around. Um, try to make things work. Try to make graphs. Try to run regressions. Try to do topic models. Just try to do whatever it is that you have the technical capacity to do and you have an interest to do. Mess around. Don't, don't, don't do it because it would be a great project or you're going to show it to anybody. Just, just try it out. Hack with it. Join people's projects in your institution who are doing interesting work and just pick up technical skills that way. There's, 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 there's a big opportunity for exploration that might not even lead to a digital humanities project, but will be using DH tools. The second and more obvious way that digital humanities can, can help is through research. So once you have a question, um, you have to figure out how you can use a set of data, a set of sources 
to answer that question. And then you have to do the technical stuff to actually make it come into play, and then you have to write it up. And if you're interested, there's good news about digital humanities. There's still a lot of low-hanging fruit. There's still lots of debates that can be clarified by digital interventions that people have not yet done, not because they're hard, but because they haven't realized that those debates can be clarified by digital interventions in the first place. This is especially true about those affordances that I discussed earlier, about scale, about doing things with large numbers of documents over long periods of time. And once we get a little bit deeper into uh, uh, these problems, there are going to be a bunch of debates that are only, we're only able to understand through the new vistas that are opened up with historical scholarship. I imagine in 10 years we're going to have a resurgence, for example, of comparative history when we're able to more easily operationalize and compare different kinds of practices over longer periods of time. So there's good news. There are sources out there. There are problems out there. If you learn the skills, you will be able to have a project. But there's bad news. There's good news and bad news, and the bad news in some ways might outweigh the good news. The bad news is if you are a student, you're going to have to worry about time. Digital humanities projects often require lengthy periods of training and new methods. If you want to do a DH project, you might have to learn a programming language. You might have to learn how to use a complicated computer program that like 12 people know how to use. You might just be kind of hacking away at, at things that you barely understand, trying to get at something that works. And you're doing this while your colleagues are just doing the things that they've been trained how to do for 15 years. They're reading and writing and taking notes and making essays and, you know, filling up index cards with sources. And once you learn the new methods, then you have to actually do the technical work, which again will take a lot of time. In my personal experience, in the life cycle of a seminar paper or dissertation, doing a DH project doubles the amount of work that you will have to do unless you get serious technical help. And this is not anything to slouch at. Every single paper that I've done with a, a heavy digital component has taken, you know, a year to complete. It slows you down. And this increased investment in time is especially troubling when you consider the fact that even after you make all of that effort, you might get a null result. Not all digital humanities projects lead to a beautiful, clear graph that explains a problem. Not all projects lead to clear solutions. I spent a year working on diaries, trying to figure out what people did on Christmas, and I counted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of diary entries on Christmas Day for hundreds and hundreds of years, trying to figure out the changing shape of Christmas, and I found that in 1700, people basically didn't do much on Christmas, and in 1850, they basically didn't do much on Christmas. It was a null result. There wasn't much change. And if that happens, if there's not a really interesting thing that you get, that paper might seem like a wash. So when you're thinking about doing a digital humanities project, you have to think of these institutional considerations. Will your advisors understand that you need more time? Will your advisors help you find money if you need money for technical help, special training, special tools, or a new computer? Will the department understand and give you the adequate recognition that you need and the adequate support that you need to do the work that you think that you need to do? And will all of these people take kindly if you happen to fail? Not by any fault of your own, but because the topic itself was not fit. Now, I still have more bad news. DH is in its infancy. A couple big digital humanities projects have failed. Only a few of the projects have come to real fruition in peer-reviewed scholarly journals. And there's a sense, I think, that nobody really knows what a mature digital humanities project is going 
to look like. And that leads to the fact that a lot of people don't know how to evaluate digital humanities work. There are constant questions about whether uh, tenure committees um, should take projects like uh, getting up large online archives or making web pages or, or making apps should take those into consideration in the same way that they take publications into consideration. Your advisor, if you are a grad student, might not understand the value that you put into the program that you built up from scratch and instead will be asking you to produce a seminar paper that you can turn into a journal article like they have done with generations of grad students in the past. And finally, a lot of people just kind of skip over technical appendices. They skip over quantitative data. They only read the results. They only read the top lines. And for those people, a lot of DH will seem a little bit boring. It will seem a little bit like the juice is not worth the squeeze. For an early career scholar, these are difficult things. But there's a silver lining. There's lots of help out there. Digital humanities is, as a field, as a group of people, really welcoming and open. Um, we all know that DH projects are an order of magnitude harder to execute than traditional scholarship. Um, and we help one another. Um, Look for mentors, not only in your own institution. Look for peers who are working on the same sorts of things that you are working on as well. And look for institutions that can help you with training. Look for workshops. And you will find them. So, my voice is getting tired. It's about 50 minutes, which is exactly how long this presentation has supposed uh, was supposed to last. Uh, and I am going to wrap it up. So I know, I realized as I was as I was a bit into this, that this is probably a little bit more weedsy than we usually get into. It's probably a little bit more insider baseball. And I'm sorry for that. We'll be back um, probably in the beginning of February uh, with um, some new podcasts, a series. Hopefully we're going to get to a weekly schedule and present you with a lot of great interviews from a lot of great scholars about a lot of great things. We have a uh, podcast in the can about early modern queenship. We're going to have a podcast about the Panama Canal. We're going to have a podcast about the history of fascism. Uh, we might have a podcast about the Vietnam War in the works. Um, we are probably going to have a podcast about arms trade history. We are going to have a large smorgasbord of fantastic uh, content for you all in the next coming weeks. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, text your friends, email your mother-in-law, call up that weird uncle of yours and tell him that you know exactly the podcast for him. It's called Making of Historian by Brendan Mackey. Thank you to all of those people who've done these things already. And thank you, as always, to Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for our music. We will speak together again soon. Bye.